2: Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. Subscribe to SubChina's daily access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources, or check out all the original writing on our site at subchina.com, including reported stories, editorials, and regular columns as well as a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim people in China's Xinjiang region, to the tectonic shifts underway as China rolls out what we call the Red New Deal. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I've mentioned in some previous shows that for the first few months of this year, I'm planning on focusing the show on the broad topic of thinking about thinking about China. After all, it seems plain to me that what we think about China depends in large measure on how we think about China, and this is true, of course, for all things, but it's especially the case when we're talking about something as colossally complex and multifaceted as a nation of 1.4 billion people in the throes of world historic change. Today's show, I hope, will serve as a sort of overture to the series, and I'm super excited about the guests that I've lined up for this program for the rest of the series. Uh, so if you have listened to Seneca over the last several years, you've probably picked up on the fact that I have some precepts or maxims that I like to invoke, that I, I try, however imperfectly, to practice uh, some habits of mind or or approaches to understanding China that I find really admirable in others and that I advocate for where I can. Some of these precepts or principles I can attach a name to and With some, I sort of understand the lineage of the ideas or who came out with them or who I should credit, uh, foxes and hedgehogs. Well, that's Isaiah Berlin. Empathy was a big theme with my mentor at the University of Arizona, Alan Whiting. Uh, Cognitive empathy, though I think I first heard Robert Wright use the phrase, and he's been a tireless promoter of the concept. Uh, There's the late Robert Jervis, who I mentioned in last week's show, uh, with all that emphasis on perception and security dilemma sensibility. Others, though, I I could never quite articulate the the ideas themselves, and while I assumed that there were people out there approaching complex problems in similar ways, I guess I just hadn't really encountered them. Then, one day, the scholar Anthea Roberts reached out to me on Twitter and told me about her forthcoming book, co-written with Nicholas Lamp. She really opened up a world. Suddenly, I had phrases like dragonfly eyes and integrative complexity to hand. And maybe because I was suddenly aware of what to be listening for, it felt all at once like the world was teeming with people whose approaches to thinking really resonated with me. People like Daniel Kahneman and his ideas about two types of thinking, slow and fast, and about what he calls cognitive ease. Uh, Howard Gardner, who is best known for his theory of multiple intelligences, and someone I mentioned last week too, Philip Tetlock, who has done amazing work on political psychology and decision-making, on forecasting. His book with Dan Gardner on super forecasting from a few years back is great, and I've mentioned that before on the show. Hopefully, we will touch on some or perhaps even all of these people today. So my guests today are Anthea Roberts and Nicholas Lamp, who have written one of those rare books that really has the potential to change not just the positive content of your beliefs, but the very process of arriving at beliefs. The book is Six Faces of Globalization, Who Wins, Who Loses, and Why It Matters. And in it, they answer quite concretely something I'm sure many of us have been asking. What is the right mindset, the right mental model with which to approach complex issues? The book, to me, felt like an upgrade to my mental operating system, and and I can't commend it highly enough. It's not a book specifically about China, but because it explores different narratives about globalization— China figures into it to a very large extent, as you will see. It's a book that, sure, it models some of the modes of thinking that I've been championing on this show for some time, but it goes well beyond that. And it articulates not only these hopefully familiar ideas in ways that I've never really been able to, but it also added, at least for me, substantially to my cognitive toolbox in a way that few books have ever done. There is great wisdom in this book, and that is not something that I say at all lightly. So let me warmly welcome my two guests today, the co-authors of the book Six Faces of Globalization. Anthea Roberts is a legal scholar who is a professor at the School of Regulation and Global Governance at Australian National University. She is the author of Is International Law International? Uh, But despite her legal training and focus, is in fact the very model of a modern interdisciplinary scholar. I feel like singing that. Anthea, welcome to Seneca.
0: Thank you for having me, Kaiser.
2: so wonderful that you could be here. Also joining on Seneca today is Nicholas Lamp, Associate Professor in the Faculty of Law at Queen's University, confusingly, in Kingston, Ontario, with a joint appointment in the Queen's School of Policy Studies. Uh, He's worked with the WTO for many years, and his focus has been on international trade systems. Nicholas, welcome to Seneca. Thanks so much for having me. So the book that you guys have written lays out six main narratives in the Western discourse on globalization, and then goes on to describe how they overlap with one another, how they're deployed uh, by proponents, how people switch between and among them, and, and much more. This concept of a narrative, let's start with, is really central to the work. Uh, now, in recent months, I, I, I mean, really, for over the last few years, I, I've seen some people push back against what they would call the overuse or maybe the abuse of the word narrative uh, with the complaint usually along lines of, you know, that the word has simply come to stand in for. A position or or a take uh, or an idea. Uh, That's not how you use it at all, though. In fact, you do something that I found very useful. You actually define what a narrative is in this context and, and what its building blocks are. So, Nicholas, can we start with you? Could you quickly walk us through what a narrative is and what its constituent parts are?
1: Thanks so much, uh, Kaiser, for for the introduction. And um, I should say at the outset that we didn't come up with this conceptualization of narratives ourselves. We draw on a a broad array of literature. But what really stood out in that literature, what's consistent uh, across several accounts, is that narratives have basically four building blocks. The first one is the framing or the way to set the scene. And if we think about globalization, you could ask what, what picture comes to mind or which picture do we foreground? Is it the container ship that, that is uh, traversing the ocean, uh, bringing us cheap goods? Is it the abandoned factory? Is it the polluted river? Is it the polar bear on the uh, ice float? And, and so these are all ways of framing the problem in a particular way. So when we think about globalization, what is is the problem? And every narrative does that explicitly or implicitly. Mm. The next element is the protagonists. Who are the villains and heroes of the story? Who are the winners and losers of the story? And who who has agency? Who's who's driving the story forward? Next, uh, the third element is the plot. Like what is actually happening here? And why is it happening here? So each narrative has to have some kind of Causal account about why uh, who has caused what and who is who's is driving developments, and the fourth element, which is really important for us, is is the moral of the story. Right. It's how should we think about what's happening? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? And that also then leads to policy prescriptions. What should we do? What we sh- should we do about it? Fantastic. That's fi- uh,
2: so. I guess the next step is let's walk through what. The main six narratives are, and with the illustrations that you suggested at the outset there, the polar bear on the ice flow, the container ship making its way across uh, all these things uh, evoke different narratives in your in your book and with the caveat that these are the most commonly found narratives in the Western discourse on globalization, let's describe each of them briefly uh, in terms of those very building blocks that you've just laid out, and maybe let's start as you do in the book with the establishment narrative, and maybe anthea, you can sketch that for us.
0: So the establishment narrative is really the narrative that I think was dominant in, in the Western debates, particularly in the 1990s and 2000s. And it was one that was dominant, not just, I think, in the Western debates, but in a lot of the non-Western world as well. And it's really the idea that economic globalization is not just a sort of an unstoppable force, but it's an unstoppable good and it's the one that says that it's a win-win situation it's a rising tide that lifts all boats or it's a growing of the pie so that everyone can have a bigger slice and it tends to have a very economic framing to it so it's it's your container ship it's your global gdp and your country gdp mhm With the idea that good things also come from that, so it's not just economic, it's that standard of living rise, et cetera. But it's really a push towards thinking about how do we make things more efficient so that we can grow the economic size of the pie and have benefits. And it's one that we call the establishment narrative, not just because it was dominant in many states, but it was also dominant in many of the international institutions. So if you think about the WTO, the IMF, the World Bank, they tended to really have this championing of things like free trade. And there was the idea with this that it made everybody better off. So it doesn't matter if you're a developed country or a developing country, it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, everybody stands to gain from economic globalization. Now that doesn't mean that they always said that everybody gains equally or straight away. Right. So there was definitely the idea that the first step you do at the international level is you grow the size of the pie. And then you leave the distribution issues to the messy politics of the domestic level so that the winners could compensate the losers. But they were a bit agnostic about actually ensuring that that did happen. But there was an idea of leaving redistribution to a domestic level. And the other thing that we heard was that there were some people who obviously lost out in the short term because their jobs were taken away. And they were told, look, really, this is a bit like technology. You've just got to adjust. And so you need to move, you need to retrain, but this is happening and and globally it's good and it'll be good for you in the long run, it'll be good for your um, children in the long run. And so really, even if not always and not straight away, this is a win-win story for all.
2: Right. So the next set of narratives are the left-wing and the right-wing populist narratives. Uh, Nicholas, uh, you worked a lot on, on sort of fleshing out those in the book, as I understand it. Uh, And I will want to ask you about that experience, especially you know in dealing with the right wing narrative. But first, what are these narratives, and how are they similar, and how are they different?
1: So the common feature that uh, left wing populists and right wing populists uh, share is is a distrust or disenchantment with the elites, even hostility, you could say. So both have this uh, vertical hostility from from the people, uh, the pure people, towards the elite. But there's also a key difference because. in in what they fault the elite for. The left-wing populists essentially fault the elite for enriching themselves and and, and ripping off uh, the working classes and the middle class, whereas the right-wing populists primarily fault the elite for selling out the the people to outsiders, uh, to an external other be it by offshoring jobs or be it by um, allowing immigrants in that, that change the composition of the population. So so there's also a strong horizontal element in the right-wing populist narrative that we don't have in the left-wing populist narrative. And so we can see this difference really clearly in the central metaphors of the two narratives. So for, this, for the right, left-wing populists, it's this idea that the economy is rigged, like that the rich have uh, written the rules of the economy in a way that they always get get richer, be it by the way they draw their zoning regulations, by the way they design the financial system, um, and, and so forth. And it's really so domestic policy problems that, that are at the core of, of of the question of who wins and loses. Whereas if we look at the central ma- metaphors of the right-wing populist narratives, we see that's always in a reference to something external, like the stealing of jobs that, that uh, Trump was always talking about. It's somebody else is doing the stealing. The elites are allowing the stealing, but it's the Mexicans and the Chinese who, who, who are stealing the jobs. Or the invasion of immigrants, they're the immigrants that are coming in uh, from the outside. On the case of Brexit, the idea we have to retake control, from whom, whom do we have to retake control? Not from the own, our own elites, but from, from that external organization, the European Union. Right. So there's this strong external element, which is the key difference between the two narratives.
2: That's uh, really very clear. Uh, and then the next pair of narratives, I'll ask Anthea to talk about uh, the geo-economic and the corporate power narratives. The geo-economic one in particular is really relevant to China and to our listenership. So let's focus on that. But what are these two narratives in a nutshell?
0: So Kaiser, I would say the geo-economic one is the one that is probably the most familiar to listeners of Seneca, and also the one that there's probably the most hostility towards from the listeners of Seneca. So the... Geoeconomic One basically says, instead of looking at particular classes, which is what you see in the left-wing nar- populist narrative, or particular communities that might have been left behind, like the Rust Belt and the right-wing populist narrative, this one focuses on the central characters or units of analysis being countries, and in particular, great power competition between the US and China. And essentially, right. it wouldn't necessarily disagree with the essence of the establishment claim that there has been an absolute gain in terms of incomes that everyone has won in an absolute sense from economic globalization, but it shifts the focus very much to relative gains. Mm. And in particular, it says, over this period of high globalization, what we've seen is that both the US and China have won on an absolute level, but but China has closed the gap with the United States, economically, militarily, technologically. And this is now, that closing of the gap, that relative gain, is now pricking a very strong reaction from the US and some of the other Western states around the world to start to want to rethink some of the ideas of economic globalization. And so here we start to see, instead of um, a focus just on uh, a win-win, we start to see ways in which you might be vulnerable or losing as a result of economic interdependence. So economic interdependence, things like supply chains, may be very economically efficient, but they may also leave you vulnerable. Vulnerable to economic coercion, vulnerable to goods being um, stopped, etc. We see a lot of discussion about some of the key networks of the global economy being weaponized, whether that's the weaponization of financial instruments or digital connectivity, a real focus on things like 5G. And what we see here is um, a, a competitive superpower element that often leads us to think about not just economic competition but technological competition. And so whereas something like the right-wing populist narrative would focus, for example, on you know lost manufacturing, manufacturing jobs and, and sort of jobs of a traditional bygone era in a way for some of the Western countries, the geoeconomic narrative firmly looks to the technological advantage of who's going to sort of win in these technological areas of the future, 5G, AI, quantum computing. And it has a very strong kind of security element to it. So when we start to hear Mm -hmm. national security is economic security, you really start to see this melding of economic ways of thinking with security ways of thinking. Now, the the reference at the end there to AI and and quantum stuff makes us think about a fifth narrative, actually. And that's actually the uh, corporate power narrative. And one of the things about the corporate power narrative is it makes us Ask the question, have we got the right unit of analysis? So instead of Mm. thinking that um, particular classes may have been the winners from economic globalization, like the top 1%, or particular communities, like um, workers in developing states versus the ones who have lost out in the developed world, or particular countries like China, What it says is maybe actually the real winners of this are the multinational corporations and that's because the multinational corporations have been able to use our trade and investment agreements in order to create very advantageous situations for themselves so they can outsource production to anywhere in the world they can attain global markets through our free trade deals they can also get uh, a lot of um intellectual property protection, and, and they're also able to, when they do foreign investment, get investor state dispute settlement. So all sorts of protections that they're able to get at the same stage that they're able to evade responsibility in areas they don't want. So they can hop, skip and jump around the world and evade things like taxation up until recently. So we've managed to get right. um, international treaties on trade and investment, but but not so much on, on taxation. But also because of their mobility, they're able to put pressure, the argument is, on governments and also particularly workers. You have the idea of a regulatory race to the bottom or the idea that um, because you're able to move around, that you're actually able to go to places where workers don't get nearly as good a deal. And so something like the right-wing protectionist narrative would really see, for example, Mexican workers winning at the expense of US workers. Whereas something like the corporate power narrative would say, no, it's actually the ability of corporations to be able to move jobs to places by, um, like Mexico, where they can actually take a good job in Canada and turn it into a bad job in Mexico. And it may be better than the Mexicans had previously, but ultimately what this does is it strengthens the hand of capital and corporate power, and it weakens the collective hand of labor. And so those are two other narratives that uh, the, the geoeconomic one often has a slightly more right-wing element to it, a bit like the right-wing protectionist narrative because it's inter-country competition. And the corporate power one has a bit more of a left-leaning element to it, a bit like the left-wing populist narrative because it's often focused on inequality and that sort of exploitation. But there's there are different mechanisms to what we see with the left and right-wing populists.
2: Right. I mean, it's, it's very, very uh, well observed the way that th- those two tend to pair up and uh in your book you do talk about the overlaps between and among them so uh it's great and we've got one left which is the we're all screwed global threats narrative and i'm going to give that one to, to you nicholas to talk about lose lose what's that all about
1: yeah from from the perspective of global threats narrative these other narratives which which debate who who has won and who has lost are a bit like fighting over the deck chairs on the titanic right, right. It's, it's like we are We're trying to work within the existing economic system and in order to achieve maybe a a more equal distribution of the gains, but while while the entire ship is going under. And uh, what does the ship stand for here? As a metaphor, it's our economic systems uh, that are driving us into catastrophe, because in the book, we have this image of the hockey stick of global prosperity, which you see shooting up with the Industrial Revolution. And the global threats narrative points out that there's also a hockey stick of global emissions that is also shooting up with the industrial revolution, and if we continue on on our current path, we are all uh, going to suffer either be a, either through uh, wildfires, uh, floods. I don't need to, to list all the manifestations of the climate crisis, but also through pandemics, which are similar in this in the respect that we can't really tackle them if we don't work together. And the Omicron variant is, of course, the last example that shows that if we don't tackle COVID globally, we are never going to get out of it. So so what is the basic message of this narrative? It's, it's first that like, we have to really change the way in which we assess progress in which we assess what it means to to win and lose we have to change our metric to one that takes account uh, broader measures of human well-being and also we also have to all work together we are we are not all losing equally and of course the the poor and developing countries are probably going to lose the, the most uh, and and the fastest but ultimately we're all going to lose if we don't change course and so two core values uh, animate this narrative. One is sustainability. So we have to try to find a way to reorient our systems so so they're sustainable. The other one is resilience. And that is a term that has come up in a narrative that has come up really in response to the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Fantastic,
2: Anthea, so a couple of weeks ago, when your book, Six Faces of Globalization, came up in conversation with Damien Ma on this show, I described it as a book that's actually about thinking about complex issues and that... You used the debate over globalization as a kind of a case study. I mean, I was exaggerating to make a point, and I imagine it really did begin life as a book about globalization. But maybe you guys could tell the story of how this book came to be. You were each working on separate projects at one point, but decided to team up. Uh, can you tell that story?
0: Sure. And and you actually hit on something that I think is quite accurate, which is it's always had these two different faces to it, and and the project itself has changed over time. So for me, this story really began um, with sort of moving away from the establishment narrative that everybody wins from economic globalization into looking at some of the work on global inequality by Branko Milanovic. And in particular, he's very famous for the elephant graph, which many of your listeners will probably know, but in case they don't, it's this elephant-shaped graph about the relative gains of different percentiles in the world economy over the period of high economic globalization from 1988 to 2008. And what it basically shows in this sort of elephant shape is that the groups that have had the really strong relative gains have been the head of the elephant, which is very much the workers in the developing worlds that have gone from being really quite poor to being sort of more middle class. And the tip of the elephant's nose, which is pointed upwards, which is very much your 1%, your global elite that have done stunningly well in this period. Mm -hmm. But there is a huge dip at the base of the elephant's trunk at about the 80th percentile. And that is actually the people in the developed world and in the Western world in particular, I think, that have really seen no income growth during this period of high economic globalization. And it turns out that that maps on really well to, um, to the lower socioeconomic classes and, and working classes in developed states like the United States. And what this made me really think when I saw this is that it was a very good way of understanding Sanders and uh, Trump in the 2016 elections, where they were both really talking to these people in the Rust Belt and these people who felt they had been left behind by economic globalization, but they had very different narratives about who was to blame. So Trump pointed to the head of the elephant and said, who's to blame? Well, it's those Chinese and Mexican workers who have taken your good job. Mm-hmm. Whereas Sanders was very much like, no, you know, don't look externally, look internally at the elite in your own country, the tip of the elephant's trunk, because they're the ones that have exploited and, and sort of got the benefits in a disproportionate way. So I had started a, a blog post on this, and it was also actually the way I met Franco Milanovic, um, but then started work on a, a broader idea, which was about how do you think global? So when you're dealing with these complex issues, How do you think in these more global ways? And I was particularly interested in how when you change scale, like Branco had done, but also when you change frame, how you really change your understanding of economic globalization. And my frame analysis was actually what I saw as the growing geo-economic competition, which really clashed an economic win-win framing with a security win-lose framing. And I sort of thought that not only when you change frames, but when you clash them in these ways, what happens? So I was working on that. At the same time, Nicholas, and we didn't actually know each other, Nicholas was working on what turned out to be a really beautiful paper with the European Journal of International Law, where he was looking at narratives about economic globalization. He was particularly trying to sympathetically understand the Trump narrative, because he felt that a lot of people in our field of trade and investment were very dismissive of Trump and just thought there was nothing in it, and were very hostile about it, and just thought it was economically illiterate. And his sense was that we needed to better and empathetically understand it as a narrative. And so he was working on the establishment narrative and the Trump narrative, and then the process of doing that, also started working on the corporate power narrative, which we see from people like mm. Danny Roderick. And so I was working on my book and on geoeconomics. He was working on these three narratives. A friend suggested that we come together, and so we, we came together and started batting around like, how does my scheme work with your scheme? And in the process of doing that, we already had the basis for five of our narratives and we started to realize that there was a bit of a structure to them, that the economic establishment one was a win-win analysis, that we started to realize that the left-wing populist, the right-wing populist, the corporate power and the geoeconomic were all win-lose narratives but with different ideas about who won and who lost. But what we then came to was actually that on the other side of the win-win analysis was actually this lose-lose one because we'd been asking ourselves, well, where does climate change fit in? Where, where do these other threats fit in? And so hmm. that's we developed that as a, as a final narrative. And so we were batting around these ideas and that was what ultimately led to the book. In particular, because quite early on after we had formulated those, I ended up in London and saw that Branco was in town. We arranged to have dinner. As we always do, we said, what are you working on? I showed him the six, these six narratives and He was really intrigued by it, and he said, you should talk to my publisher, and that's how the book started.
2: Fantastic. Well, the two of you do such an excellent job of presenting good faith representations of these six narratives. I think it's one of the book's great strengths. You present them as the proponents of each narrative would understand them. That cannot have been easy, and I'm sure... There are going to be readers who are going to take issue, especially with your presentation of some of these arguments. I'm thinking in particular of the right-wing populist narrative. I mean, there will be some people who think maybe that, you know, talking about their wanting to preserve traditional community is – a euphemism for xenophobia or even for for flat-out racism or white supremacy. I wanted to ask you guys about that, specifically Nicholas, because you do deal with this idea of racism, anti-foreignism, that others, many, I hope most of our listeners in the mainstream, will find distastefully intolerant. And uh, for both of you, and especially Nicholas, because I think you were the one who was sort of getting your hands dirty in, in, in the YouTube channels of the right... How did this experience of researching and writing the book? How did it change your understanding of these narratives, especially these ones that you did not feel initially comfortable with?
1: Yes, uh, thank you for that question, and, and it's one of the most interesting. Has been one of the most interesting experience in in writing the book, to really try to to delve into a world that is not my own. Like it was very easy to. Right, for example, the left-wing populist ones I have no hesitation of referring to private equity funds as locusts, or, or, or something <laughs> like that. Um, whereas it was very hard uh, to to muster the kind of th- sympathy for for some of the um, politicians, such as Trump, or uh, the Brexiteers, or the um, AFD, yeah, Alternative for Deutschland in Germany, AFD in, in Germany. That was necessary in order to to implement our approach, and and really just to, to set that out at the beginning. It's, it's a methodological choice on our part to approach these narratives with, in, 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 with two ways. First, without contempt for those who hold them, right? And I think it's, you only have to think of Hillary Clinton's comment about the basket of deplorables sure. to, to understand that if you st- approach a group of people with contempt, you're not going to get anywhere. Uh, you may motivate your own tribe, but you're not going to understand them any better and they're not going to be able to persuade anyone, but the other strategic choice or methodological choice that we made is was to take the narratives at face value and and not kind of go behind and uh, the motivations or question the motivations, which is of course a problematic assumption to make in many instances. And it's also one reason why we uh, we stop at conspiracy theories. We don't engage with conspiracy uh, theories or climate denial or COVID denial, which wasn't really an issue at the time when we started working on the book. But but. We take the narratives at face value but that meant that we had to try to to understand understand them and you can't understand them without listening. you can't understand uh, the narratives without uh, just based on your preconceived ideas. And so what I tried to do was uh, to, to listen to interviews uh, especially with voters um, of the afD for example Germany with the Brexiteers with uh, with um, listening to Trump's speeches. And try to strip away some of the rhetoric, and really try to drill down on that that last part, the moral of the story, mm-hmm. the values that that were um, animating animating them. And again, I should also say, our, our attempt is never we never our aim is not to say that we should all agree with all these narratives. Uh, okay. It is it is it was an attempt to peel away the rhetoric in order to identify these values, in order to. See well. Is this something really something that we have to reject, right? Because absolutely, if there's xenophobia or racism, there's no question in my mind that we want to reject it, and it's unacceptable. But what what we found was there were often fears, or th- there were people with caring about things that they thought were positive, and that others might also see a- as positive, right? And and they were trying to preserve things that we all value. And that they that they saw threatened by certain developments, and so revealing those values that they were that they were cared about seemed to us to provide potentially a basis for a, for a conversation. We may say, still find that ultimately there is the unacceptable attitudes and and the unacceptable views, but at least it helps us to understand where they're coming from, uh, not necessarily demonize them. And because ultimately the aim, if we want to move forward, has to be to peel away those who are open to persuasion, uh, whose manifestation of the political beliefs is based on misconceptions and misunderstandings, peel them away from the hard right, from the racist and from, from the xenophobes. And so not, we cannot do that un, unless we understand where they're coming from. Yeah. Anyway, so that that's the basic. That was the basic at, attempt that we were trying uh, that we were trying to to make
0: can I add one thing to what Nicholas said in terms of the right wing
1: sure absolutely
0: so I I agree with uh, obviously the way Nicholas presents um, that process of trying to understand the different narratives but I think on a meta level it's also interesting to note that we went through a journey with this book which is a little bit like I would say the journey that John Haidt went through in his righteous mind book so in his mm. righteous mind book which was to look at the difference sort of um, moral bases of, of liberals and conservatives, he actually started out that as quite liberal and wanting to better explain to liberals how to appeal to other values. And yet by the end of the book, he had actually moved to be more centrist and had gained more of an appreciation for some of the conservative values than he had before, and also more concern about some of the intolerances on the left about sort of propounding their own values. And I think we've had a similar thing happen where some of the narratives that we weren't as intuitively sympathetic to at the beginning, we've come to really see that all of them have something strong and important. That you need to understand what it is they're valuing and how how they're valuing it and and what's behind them, and that all of them have a point to make, even if they are not always ones that you like or you can find distasteful. But we've also become, I think, much much more conscious of some of the blind spots and some of the narratives that we had favoured, but also the sort of the tone with which those narratives are often said in a a very kind of imperious, you know, if you don't agree with me, you're stupid and racist, uh, or you just don't understand economics. And, and so it's made us a, a much more sensitive to our own tone and to thinking about um, how it is that you try to have these sorts of conversations. And where we've seen this also come up now is in vaccine. So are, are people anti-vaxxers or are they vaccine hesitant? And how do you sort of start to unpick those? And how do you talk to people who have vaccine fears? Is it helpful to sort of say you're all like anti-vax and crazy and, and stupid and selfish? Or are there also people there who actually have some legitimate fears where it's helpful to actually listen and, and talk and try to work out what's behind it? So I think this is a, a broader issue that kind of goes towards some of the polarization we're seeing in our media environments.
2: So Anthea, once you've done this, though, you sort of arrive at a point where you recognize that there are these different perspectives and all of them are worth making an effort to understand. But there will be critics who will sort of recoil at some of this and who will say, this is just sort of both siding or multi-sidesing these issues that you are at risk of losing moral clarity. This could just end up leading to kind of a paralysis or indecision. Why is this a better approach?
0: So this is one where the, the psychologist that you were talking about earlier, Tetlock's work is actually really helpful. And what he sort of describes also with Sudfeld, who I think was his advisor, um, is this process of integrative complexity, which is if you really want to understand complex problems, it helps to employ this process of integrative complexity, which has two different elements to it. So the first is an ability to differentiate. So to be able to see a complex problem from many different perspectives and many different sides, but also not in black and white ways of right and wrong, often in ways that understand many more shades of gray and nuance. So you can start to see it from these many different perspectives. But the second element, which is not the differentiation element, it's the integration element, which is starting to work out ways that you can bring this back together. So you don't just think that there's an establishment view and a right wing protectionist view, but you start to think about like, well, how do they connect? How do they overlap? Where are their points of tension? Where might there be points of agreement? Right. And what he's actually found, and I think these are two really interesting findings, is first of all, in the forecasting world, they find that people who have this cognitive style of integrative complexity, who are able to stitch together many different perspectives and many different pieces of information back into a more integrated whole, actually have a much better understanding of complex problems and therefore are much better able to predict what is likely to happen. So I think it actually often gives you a much better understanding of reality if you don't sort of put blinders up and and, and judgment at the outset of this is right and this is wrong and really try to understand how it looks from different perspectives. But the other thing I think that's quite interesting is that there's also psychological work done that it's actually the leaders that tend to have this much more complex style that are more likely to be able to find peaceful solutions going forward. That if you tend to see things very much from one perspective and in really black and white ways of good, bad, us, them, it's actually more likely to lead to conflict and to war. Whereas if you're able to see things from different perspectives and understand that different people have different priorities, but they're also trying to protect different things, not only do you understand the problem better, But you're often better able to find ways in a creative way where you can meet both sides core concern or find a compromise in various ways. And so we do a lot of that work in in the book as well. So I think it's helpful for understanding. I also think it's helpful for moving forward. It's not always easy. And you don't always have to accept everything that everybody says. But even, for example, if you don't accept some of the different values that, um, that other groups hold, you also need to understand that you're working in democracies and you need to work with groups who hold these different values. And it's going to make a difference to the way that economic globalization is accepted or the way that immigration is accepted. And so I think it's very helpful to try to sort of understand that for a variety of political reasons, as well as sort of personal understanding.
2: Tetlock reminds us that policy is prediction after all, and so yeah, this capacity i'm I'm curious if you could name check a few leaders of recent decades who you think really exhibit these qualities this this capacity for integrative complexity
0: yeah that's a that's actually a really hard one. Um, I mean, I think the archetypal one they they give as an example of not having as much integrative complexity was Trump, and a lot of people would say that obama had strong integrative complexity. But Obama, obviously, on, on a sort of a, a deeper level, did not resonate at all with some of the people who would be supportive of some of the right-wing populist narrative or the geoeconomic narrative. So there was a sort of a tone deafness there as well. So- um,
2: You mean clinging to God and guns and-
1: right.
0: Yeah, yeah. So yeah, well. Nicholas, I don't know if you've got an answer as to- I'm, I'm actually not sure, Kaiser. That-
1: some politicians have reacted to the current moment by trying to to um, to become more comp- complex in their thinking, and one example is the the new German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, who who has really internalized, I think, the the left wing populist, but also the right wing populist critique of globalization, and and therefore he made respect the centerpiece of his campaign, which struck many in Germany as as, as Kind of weird, and it turned out that he had read some of those same books that we read for the book, Branko Milanovic. Um, I think Michael Sandel's uh, book, and and so he had really understood how important it was to value different types of work, uh, not just uh, the the professional elites, but also uh, the, the the essential workers who had come to the prominence in the pandemic, and, and really was trying to make an effort to bring them bring them on board and, and build a coalition that 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 uh, incorporated different values.
2: That's something Germany has done better than the United States for a very, very long time anyway, right? Uh, Respecting people who aren't in, in, you know, university-educated professional class. But uh, yeah, Olaf Scholz is a, yeah, from what I understand of him so far, I think he's an excellent example.
1: Even the Biden administration, though, if you read um, some of the early, uh, the Foreign Affairs pieces, it almost seemed like a hodgepodge, but it was really... as well, in an attempt to to bring in these different values. So in the trade policy, it's very clear. It used to be just about uh, growing the economy, but now they're trying to bring in climate change. They're trying to make it a worker-centric trade policy. They're trying to address security concerns. So really, in Biden's trade policy, even though he hasn't very successfully implemented yet, at least you see an attempt... To to make a chime with all these different uh, concerns that are brof- brought forward by the that was an narrative.
2: example that I had thought of was Jake Sullivan's idea of this uh, foreign policy for the middle class. I thought that 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 exemplified it in a lot of ways. Excellent. I'm I'm curious. Did you run these six narratives by people who you presumed to be actual exponents of the different narratives to see you know what they thought of your of your
1: characterizations? Yes, we did. We actually had. Uh, planned a series of book workshops in the united states which we then had to cancel at least in the in-person version uh due to the pandemic but we held uh, four workshops online and we ran our chapters by proponents of the different of the different narratives especially those that we didn't feel uh, very comfortable with so for example jeff ferry who is uh, with the coalition of for, for prosperous america in the united states he read our our account of the right wing populist narrative and he liked it. And and so that was, I think the, a great uh, feeling of achievement for us that we could write, that we had written that chapter in a way that someone who, um, who we thought of as an, a proponent of the narrative would, would accept as genuine, but that, that was also be um, something where, where somebody who is not a proponent of the narrative could read it and, and see, well, that, that makes sense at some level, like there, there's something, something valuable here. And, I think that the basic idea was, well, it's very easy to caricature the narratives. Every one of these narratives could be caricatured. Um, but what we were trying to do is write them in a way that both proponents of the narratives could, could accept them as, as authentic in a way. And others who are not proponents of the narrative could see something valuable. In, in that perspective.
0: We also received uh, written comments on the narratives from a lot of people. And one of the things I really noticed is that when people were in a narrative they didn't agree with, they tended to have a lot of like, but this and but this, and like, what about that? And, you know, I disagree with this. And then when they would get to a narrative that I would think would represent them, they'll be like, see, yeah, right on. Like, that's right. And you could actually really... <laughs> tell from their comments about they were like you know well now you've got this one surely you as authors will see you know the other narratives they're problematic but this this is the right narrative and so we wanted to give people the experience as they moved through the different narratives of sort of thinking this one looks like it's the right narrative and then you would change narrative and be like oh no this one this one that really has something to offer and then you change narrative and be like oh this one has something to offer because I think all the people who propound that they really have something that they're offering to the debate.
2: This is called attribution error or or confirmation bias, one of the two or some combination thereof. But yeah, I, I can totally imagine that happening. I want to I bring this back a little closer to China uh, for the for the moment. I am obviously in dialogue with a lot of people who work on China in, in various capacities. And while I wouldn't say this is true of all of them, I think for most, if they had to map themselves – somewhere on your Rubik's Cube of the the six uh, faces, they would probably admit to having at least one foot in the establishment narrative camp, uh, though with many, many caveats. I mean, I'm generalizing here and obviously painting with a very broad brush, but I think it's fair to say that for the typical guest that I've had on, or even maybe for the typical listener to this show, insofar as she is persuaded by the protectionist positions at all, she's going to be way more in sympathy with the left and not so much with the right populist narrative. The typical cynic is probably more persuaded by misgivings, and I, I know this is certainly the case with me, uh, the, the misgivings that form part of the corporate power narrative. In fact, while you were... Just you know, sort of reiterating it. I hadn't read the chapter in a little while, but I, I find myself very much nodding in agreement with, uh, with the descriptions in the corporate power narrative. More on that in a second. They all, they probably also recognize how globalization has contributed to a lot of global threats. You know, invasive species, the spread of pandemics, and of course, global warming. Uh, what would you say though to someone who reads the book and comes away thinking, Yeah, okay, those other perspectives have some valid points, but All we really need to do is just take some of those legitimate concerns on board, temper our establishment narrative a bit, and we're good to go. Is that enough?
0: So our argument isn't about the end point we should reach. Uh, we are not proponents of any of the narratives. We're also not proponents of any particular combination of the narratives. And I think time will tell how much we depart from the establishment narrative. So I don't think Nicholas or I believe that this is the end of globalisation and everything's going to be overturned. But I think what we do believe is that there is a more fundamental readjustment going on. So I think in the 1990s and 2000s, you did have a, that sort of movement of like we can, we can patch and make exceptions and make tweaks around the edges. So you have trade and investment agreements. And if there's concern about labour environment, we can add sort of a non-binding chapter or we can add an exceptions clause. We could do something minor and keep going. But I think what we've seen in recent years is a much more sort of fundamental challenge to the establishment position that's coming from multiple sides. And so I think in this next era, we're really trying to work out kind of what's the recalibration that's going to lead to a new settling point? And I think Nicholas has mentioned in, in trade policy, we're really starting to see that. So we're starting to see that climate is becoming a much more important consideration, workers' rights are becoming more important, but also particularly security is becoming more important, and that's actually not just tweaking the establishment approach at the outside, it's tweaking it in much more fundamental ways. And that's because many of these things like, uh, you know, technology are are dual use. And so if you start to think economic security as national security and you apply it to technology, The potential ramifications of that could be quite large. Now, we don't know where that will end up. And I don't think we're going to end up in a world of complete decoupling, but I think we could well end up in a world with much more substantial technological decoupling about data heavy industries. And those things will significantly change economic globalization. So I think one of the things we need to understand is that there are multiple significant challenges to the establishment narrative that are happening at once where we're trying to resettle, but also many of them embody values that are different to the establishment narrative and so require a more considerable change than just a tinkering at the edges. If you're going to start to sort of value workers' rights and value traditional communities or value environmental protection, we probably need a more substantial change to the establishment approach than just a, you know, minor adjustment, good to go, move forward.
2: I'm curious, I mean since you've both worked on international trade, especially Nicholas, if you look at the text of the TPP as it existed in 2016 and the CPTPP, would you find that all they've done is tinkered around the edges or do you think that the, this embodies the kind of substantive taking on board of the critiques of globalization uh, that you would be describing and you would be hoping for? Do you think that that's changed substantially?
1: Well, the TPP was in a way the last hurrah of of the a neoliberal approach to trade agreements, at least in the United in the United States, there were some there were some modifications made that that were a departure from the model that had been pursued before. And I just want to mention uh, a few examples. So, for example, uh, the TPP had still investor-state dispute settlement, so investors could still sue governments. But at Australia's insistence, uh, tobacco control measures had been exempted from that hmm. mechanism because Australia's tobacco plain packaging law had been challenged in, in ISDS. And so that was one, one of the measures that was specifically identified that as, as a measure that you couldn't uh, challenge. Another notable aspect here was that the US was not successful in the TPP and imposing the level of IP protection, especially for biologic drugs that it had maintained in the United States itself on its trading partners. And finally, there, there was there were also another element of the corporate power narrative reflected in the TPP, was, which was a very ambitious plan of action uh, on labor issues with Vietnam. Mm. So Vietnam would only have benefited from the tariff reductions to the United States if it implemented really fundamental reforms to to its labor unions. It would essentially have to allow independent unions. Wow. And so the, the United States had a very ambitious uh, plan, which which is now a moot because the United States is no longer part of the agreement. What's really interesting, though, about uh, the demise of the TPP, and it's something we tend to forget because it's overshadowed by Trump, is that the reason the TPP didn't get through Congress in, uh, in 2015 and 2016 was because Republicans were resisting these elements of the agreement, which were a departure from the model. So essentially, Republicans were saying that it doesn't do enough for corporations. right? right? So when Mitch McConnell was upset about the tobacco carve-out. Uh, the, the IP lobby was upset about the fact that they didn't get the same level of protection for biologic drugs. The financial industries was upset about uh, some data localization rules uh, that allowed data localization requirements for the financial industry, which... U.S. Treasury had insisted on. So it's not the, the TPP didn't get ratified by U.S. Congress because of a populist backlash. It was the establishment backlash against kind of the concessions that were being made to the left in, in the agreement that meant that under Obama, it wasn't uh, ratified. And then, of course, Trump came along and withdrew the United States. But but it's, it's like that it was the last hurrah of of the establishment era. It was really establishment resistance that brought the TPP down in the first place, which then made it so easy for Trump to with to withdraw.
2: It's it's interesting to me that when you when you look at well, I, I was thinking this as I read the chapter on on corporate power, there were so many Americans on both sides of the aisle who were persuaded to channel their hostility. Into the sense of agreement over Chinese violations of intellectual property rights. And to get really angry, and not, they were angry on behalf ultimately of big corporations. And this seems to fly in the face of what what the main thrust of popular understanding of opposition to this trade agreement was, which was from the left and right populist narrative. So it it was strange. I, you would think that, that the corporate power narrative would get a sympathetic hearing among people who subscribe to both of the protectionist narratives. And I thought that was really odd. and It was very, very strange and, and kind of an insidious thing. It's just that we're kind of unaware of, of the extent to which corporations still have a, a hold on us. This is true of data flows. We, we think of data flows as something that we should in, inherently, we should always protect them because it's sold as something. But, you know, the beneficiaries of free data flows are, of course, the real beneficiaries are Fang, you know, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google, right? This is also true of, of so intellectual property protection, data flows, and ISDSs, right? These uh, investor-state dispute settlements. It's it's very strange how they they seem to have a very subtle way of of using that uh, right-wing and left-wing populist anger to, to to subvert support for this this trade deal. It's very very interesting.
0: So I think also one of the things that's happening where corporations are really interesting is that the the role they play as sometimes like the bad guys domestically with lots of power um, when you've got a domestic frame of analysis, but then when you go internationally, they're kind of like, you know, on the US team and flying the US flag and leading. And right. you see this kind of shift happening very much between the corporate power and the geoeconomic narrative. So one of the examples we give in the book where this was just most egregious, but I think you see this more generally. You
2: can say Mark Zuckerberg. It's when Zuckerberg. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: Zuckerberg's, <laughs> the, his notes when he was taken before, um, Congress and a a reporter photographed his notes and on it they said if they ask about breaking up Facebook say you can't do that because then China will win. That was just a really obvious case of he was being taken before Congress on a corporate power narrative which is you know Facebook is the big bad corporation and the government needs to step in to regulate to protect the little guy consumer which is that kind of left-wing narrative that you were talking about or the a corporate power narrative of exploitation and concern and what he said is like let's change the frame let's change the level of analysis it's actually an international competition for technological supremacy and we're actually against team china and team china has civil military fusion between their academy and their um their corporations and their government and they're they're battling for the technological future and we're all on team america so don't hamstring me because American regulator and American consumers in America, we're all on the same side. And and look, sure, you may have some reservations about privacy and what we're sort of uh, sucking up, but gosh, would you prefer to have Chinese companies sucking that up? Would you prefer to have Chinese companies going into third markets? Like that's so much worse. And so we see this real thing when you see surveillance capitalism, when that's written about, there's such a concern about the big, bad, fang companies, right? But, but often almost no concern about Chinese surveillance. And then you go to the geoeconomic narrative and there's much less concern about FANG surveillance and much more concern about Chinese surveillance and technological supremacy. So it's, an, it's sort of another example of, not just how you can strategically switch between them, but but when you change your level of analysis, you change your understanding of us versus them. Of who's the good guy and who's the bad guy and which team you're on in the first place. And corporations sit at that nexus where sometimes they're the bad guy and sometimes they're the good guy. Sometimes they're against your team. Sometimes they're on your team.
2: So obviously, China figures in quite a bit into the book uh, as sort of, you know, in, in some of the narratives, certainly not all of them, kind of an archetypal other. Uh, and there are other ways that you talk about China, that you bring China into the book, and we'll get to that. But maybe, Nicholas, first you can start off. Uh, in these six main narratives, how does China figure in?
1: I think for the for the establishment narrative, uh, China is very much a poster child, um, an argument that you will often hear in debates about globalization is this argument, uh, but we lifted 700 million people out of poverty, right? And and of course, China is mainly responsible for that. And that's kind of employed as a knockdown argument. So whatever is wrong with the establishment approach, this this is kind of defeats all the other arguments because it's such a monumental achievement. Right. And also, of course, China is responsible for much of the benefits um, from globalization for the West. Uh, on the establishment narrative you. all those cheaper products—they're like a huge pay rise uh, that, that that we all in the West got. Um, and our real incomes have gone up because we have access to these cheaper products, and if the government, uh, Chinese government, subsidizes those products even better, and I mean it's it's the Chinese government uh, essentially giving us a present. So so it's really a poster child of globalization in the establishment narrative's view. Mm-hmm. Of course, on the right, uh, if you go to the right-wing populists um, and and the geoeconomic narrative, it's it's a bogeyman. It's the, the other that you mentioned. It's it's a security threat that has eaten our lunch economically um, or, or, or threatens our technological and military supremacy. And that's very familiar, so I don't think I have to elaborate on that. The left-wing reaction to the right-wing uh, portrayal of China is... Often to say that China is being used as a scapegoat right. by the right, in um, particular in the corporate power narrative, we find that very strongly. We have in the book we cite people who are saying, "Well, you're you're pointing to to China as the cause of our ills, but really it's the fault of our domestic corporations who are not uh, who are deciding to outsource, who are deciding not to pay proper wages. It's the fault of our politicians who who, who don't invest in our roads and infrastructure. So it's it's a, really a distraction." Uh, from 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 the left, we sometimes it, see it's China as a distraction that is used in order to not focus on our domestic problems. When we get to the global threats narrative, I I would I've been thinking quite a bit about uh, what to call it, but it's really China has become the indispensable uh, nation in the sense that it's yes, it's it's a contributor uh, to the global threats, especially climate change that we cannot ignore, but it's also indispensable to any solution. Right, um, right, and so that uh, fosters the sense of we have to work. Uh, together, um, The West has to work together with China because there's no way we're going to solve any of this without China. And, and
2: that recognition juxtaposed with the recognition that, you know, there is uh, an inevitable strategic competition with China creates a, a, an interesting conundrum and one that you guys suggest in your book would be one that's amenable to exploration through this mental model. But we'll get to that in a second It's really interesting that you presented your book, I I suppose it was virtually, to Chinese audiences, and you received some really interesting feedback when you talked about which of these narratives you'd also find present in China. Uh, And one narrative, not one of your main six, but another one that you introduced in your chapter on sort of biases and, and blind spots, was conspicuously absent in the discourse on globalization. Can you talk about what that narrative is and what you found interesting about the fact that it was absent in the Chinese discourse?
0: Yeah. So, so to do that, let me just say a little bit about kind of what was present in the Chinese discourse and then what, what was noticeably sure. absent. So as Nicholas said, um, China figures sometimes in a really positive ways in, in the various other narratives. And one of the things that came up quite clearly from these discussions was that, um, all six of the narratives you could see in Chinese debates. And actually we have mm-hmm. four non-Western narratives and they thought three of the non-Western narratives you could see, but one was missing. But let me just give you a, a quick sketch on those six. So, what you saw very strongly in China uh, was a strong commitment to the establishment narrative, for the reasons yeah. that Nicholas has suggested, and that's where you see Xi going to Davos and on all of that.
2: I was there. I was here. Heard the speech.
0: So, so that's really the embodiment, right? And one thing that I think we need to be very conscious of in the Western debates is there's been a big popular backlash now against economic globalization in the West, but there's much more support and enthusiasm for it in other parts of the world, particularly Asia, where they've seen extraordinary growth in their incomes in really tangible ways in their lifetimes. And so it's not just a figure, it's something that they have lived experience on. At the same stage, we're starting to see, for example, the left-wing populist and the corporate power narrative. That's really starting to come out, Kaiser, with a lot of what you're talking about, the Red New Deal. So we're seeing the common prosperity ideas. We're seeing the crackdown on big tech. So there, actually, you're st- seeing China responding, and then sometimes people thinking they're a model of how to respond. Right. On the geoeconomics and on the protectionist side, you very much see the same thing, but but the is told. From the other perspective so instead of it being the big bad China security rise you've really got the US is losing its supremacy and it's trying to hold China's rise back and we need to have indigenous technology so that we can go forward but we also need to have dual circulation so that we have more self-reliance and and that could could be a self-reliance thing it could be a protectionist thing and then with the um the lose-lose down the bottom you really see China saying look We're a a provider of global goods, you know, whether it's Mm -hmm. global infrastructure or global vaccines, we are this indispensable nation. So there was a strong feeling that China was, you could see all of those narratives in different ways in the Chinese debates and that they're moving up and down at, at various points of time too. When we get to the non-Western narratives, there was a sense that China was very much in favor of the Asia rising narratives, um, and particularly the rise of the sleeping giants of of, um, China, this huge civilization, and India. And then, then you've got the against Western hegemony narrative, which is where they band together a bit more with uh, Russia to sort of say, look, and that's on things like internet and, and those sorts of areas, which is, you know, don't take your liberal democratic market approach and think it's one size fits all. This is just Western hegemony and we need to be able to push back. Um, And also you're not just hegemonic, you're hypocritical. There was a sense that China definitely was fitting in there. And mm-hmm. then the, the the fourth narrative there was um the kind of left-behind narrative, which is often about um, people and countries in Africa, the bottom billion, that really haven't had the advances. And here then you see China figuring in these two different ways. One is China sort of saying, look, we, through our investment and through our infrastructure, we can bring you along the same path of development that we've been on. And others saying, no, no, this is just going to be colonialism Again, but this time colonialism by China rather than by the Western powers. The narrative that was really conspicuously absent is actually the one that's most commonly associated with developing states in the trading regime, which is the neo-colonial narrative. And this is one that you see by India and various others, which is really the idea that, you know, don't feel sorry for the developed states as though they've lost out from economic globalization. First of all, through colonialism. And then after the colonial empire fell away, through neo-colonialism, through you know, their transnational corporations through the World Bank and everything what we've really been doing is protecting the transnational uh, class, which includes corporations and elites, and they have been extracting extraordinary benefits from Africa, the Scramble in Africa, through Asia, through other sorts of places, to their benefit, and it's really meant that we've sort of solidified a world economy where the developed states have been able to industrialise and move ahead, and, and developing states have been stuck just doing raw materials, et etc. And what was so interesting, of course, is that China often likes to present itself as the face and leader of developing states and say it's a developing state, but it had none of that articulation, Mm -hmm. right? Because its experience with economic globalization in the past 30 years has been an extremely positive one. So it's much more the Asia rising, you know, some states can lift out through hard work and through through clever policies. And that's this really, really positive story and also a positive story it tries to tell other developing states. It obviously has a longer history with some of the things like the century of humiliation of, sort of feeling subjugated by Western powers, but that has not been the dominant story, I think, through economic globalization. And so Nicholas had done a lot of work previously on the WTO where you really see this neo-colonial narrative being championed, but it's not being championed by China.
2: You're absolutely right. I, that, that is uh, absolutely accurate. I'm, in all conversations I've had, it, that just never, never comes up. One thing that you that they talk about an awful lot about in in China, and this this taps into some of the other uh, non Western narratives that we've talked about. Uh, the West's ideological hegemony, you point out, is a dimension of economic globalization that receives little attention in Western narratives, which is is absolutely true. It, it's it's correct, but I think it's interesting because it's my sense that one of the things that really gets under the skin of so many Americans and other Westerners. Is how the Chinese case just undermines all these axiomatic beliefs that Americans have. These are, you know, the load-bearing walls of American exceptionalism. It just doesn't compute with Americans, even after all this time. Really, uh, that you could have a functioning market economy in the absence of of political democracy, right? I mean, it, it vexes them. Uh, it, it it seems obvious to me that these cracks in American ideological hegemony. Uh, that are a huge but, you know, unacknowledged part of American collective anxiety over globalization. Uh, they, they touch, you know, I think proponents of almost all of these narratives. Uh, these all kind of go back to China. It strikes me that the crisis of globalization itself, you know, that really broke out in its most conspicuous form in 2016, it was timed so perfectly with the kind of subversion of other narratives that, uh that the Americans and other Westerners had so long held and the the perpetrator, the subverter of those narratives was always China about the, you know, the innovation narrative around technology that you weren't supposed to be able to innovate unless you had, you know, conditions of free flow of information. You weren't supposed to uh, be able to harness technology to, to, you know, make authoritarianism flourish. It was supposed to bring down authoritarianism, right? It, it doesn't seem to me a coincidence that the, the, the assault on the establishment narrative took place at the same time as uh, China's subversions of other deeply held beliefs. What, what do you think of that? What
1: do you make of that? Well, one, one thing that I've observed from my vantage point of being a scholar of the, of the trade regime is that it's not, maybe, maybe not necessarily an, um, a subversion of, of the axioms, or that's really true, but it's, it's more the sense of loss hmm. of control a loss of agency on the part of the West. And you see that very uh, clearly reflected in the debate about China's accession to the WTO, uh, which is interestingly another example where you have one set of facts and very many very different narratives. Right. From China's perspective, of course, the accession is, is one, a painful memory because China took on many more obligations than other developing countries at the time. So it, it felt um, that it had given, it had paid a lot uh, to join the WTO. When you um, mm. I just recently read the book by Paul Bluespeen's schism, which recounts the accession process and it shows very clearly that at the time the United States negotiated we were driving a really hard bargain and, and really realistically got everything out of China that they got. But now there's this perception, oh it wasn't enough. like we can't contain China through the WTO. there's nothing we, we can do and maybe it was a mistake. So there's almost this illusion of control that we could have prevented this if we hadn't let China join the WTO. And, and the reason it seems to me like a loss of control is because really going back to the end of the Second World War, the U.S. and the Western powers had been driving the trade regime. They had been really almost getting their way every time. Uh, the clearest example is the Round uh, conclusion in 1994 when they managed to impose the TRIPS Agreement, the Agreement on trade related Intellectual Property Rights, on countries that really didn't want them, Brazil, India had no inclination to join this agreement. And, and through some shrewd institutional maneuvering, uh, the West managed to, to impose that. And China's accession and then the subsequent perception that we are not able to change China's economic system in any significant way, is really has been, I think, a huge wake-up call that control is slipping away and, and control that we used to have that the West used to have in the trade trade regime, so it's not only um, it's a subversion of these axioms that are underpinning Western hegemony. It's it's also just a loss of the power uh, to shape uh, shape and wins that that uh, in a way that that the West hasn't experienced uh, for a very long time.
2: Yeah, it's a, a more direct explanation, a very elegant one. That's great. I, I love that.
0: So I think what Nicholas is describing is a shift in power and obviously what happens when there's a shift in power is you have to put the shoe on the other foot. You have to experience a particular phenomenon, not just where you're in the front foot but when you're sort of behind and I think we're starting to see that a lot so globalization in many ways isn't globalization it's sometimes called globalization where you're really globalizing somebody's localism and what we've had in globalization today because of the kind of um, political and economic power of the West is we've often been globalizing American or European standards and that's why you think about things like the California effect or the the Brussels effect that there has been an ability to take your own regulations your own way of doing things your own market standards and and kind of globalize them around the world. And so they see that as a really positive way to spread their values. And it can be economically; it can also be, you know, Hollywood and how that spreads around the world, right, uh, in a cultural way. But what we're starting to see now is there's so much power economically starting to come out of China and Beijing that we're starting to see kind of a Beijing effect in many ways. And you see this most clearly at the moment with the censorship debates where a lot of the Hollywood players, if they want to get to a Chinese audience and they want to reach that part of the market... They need to sort of fit within certain express or implied censorship requirements, and that's causing them to behave in certain ways, and it's causing a huge reaction in the US because there's suddenly a feeling of like we're sort of having to have our cultural values infringed by your cultural values with this sort of extraterritorial effect. Of course, you know, those in Africa would say that they've been suffering that from the US for years with cultural hegemony in the film industry. So I think there's not just a kind of a loss of power but a kind of how does certain phenomena feel when you're the source of power versus when you're the subject of power. And as um, economic globalization kind of evens things up, um, the West has to feel a little bit more about what it feels like to be the subject of that power, and it doesn't always like it. But the other thing I would say about the challenge of China is that sometimes they're playing a, a bit of a different game and those games create kind of some incompatibilities that are difficult. So one way I like to think of this is um, that you think about the US and China as though they're all coming to like the, the um, a, f- a football field to play on, but they're playing two different styles of football. So. Right. Um, the US is playing kind of World Cup soccer, so they're fast and they're innovative and they can move the plays down and they've got a lot of individual talent and a lot of sort of freedom of action. Whereas I think counterintuitively, actually, the Chinese team is a little bit more like an American gridiron team, which is they're, they're more centrally coordinated, they're, they're, they're more padded. Um, they may not be as fast and nimble, but when they choose to move down the field in a particular way, they can really take out opposition. So this is a more stark comparison, but it's they're they're both games of football, but they're different games of football. And so what happens if you suddenly have a World Cup soccer team and a world-class gridiron team come together on the same Pitch. they're both decent games and they're both decent ways to organize your economy. But you, when you start to play against each other, it's going to be really difficult. And I think in many ways, we've already seen China take on some of the lessons of the soccer team and sort of at an earlier stage to cut loose some of its innovation more and, and empower the private sector more, get more fast and loose in some of the ways that we had seen of the American soccer players. But I think what we're also seeing with the American team now is a bit like, well, if we're playing soccer against gridiron, we want to put on a helmet and we want to That's put on right. ship pads and we, pads want, we want more protection. And so one of the things you're going to end up finding is that they are going to kind of converge their style of play in ways to kind of cope with the fact that they're trying to deal with these sort of slightly different styles of play. And then there are going to be some areas where they're not going to do that. And they're going to say, look, actually, We want to play separate games. So everybody who wants to play 5G, uh, internet over here without, um, Huawei, you come on the field and we'll play our soccer. And everybody who doesn't, you go over there and you can play gridiron. And so part of what we're going to see in the world economy is like, when are we going to have separate games? And when are we going to have like this joint game where we can't really agree on what the rules are at the moment? And we can't really even trust it to an external referee like the WTO, but we're going to be modifying our state of play because we're dealing with a competitor that has a different style of play. So this particular um, one this comes out of the geoeconomic narrative it's it's not we we aren't the source of this. I think we originally got it from Tim Stratford, but I think it's quite an impo- like an interesting way of analyzing what's going on as through a sporting metaphor that should be familiar to people
2: yeah, I remember I was on a panel moderating a panel with Tim Stratford on it, and he'd uh, used that that same metaphor it's a really it's great it's a quite perfect one. yeah. Speaking of metaphors, you know, I mean, you know, there's there's so many wonderful ones that you use, like you, you say, a whole menagerie of animals that come through. You've got your, you know, uh, the five blind men and the elephant. You've got the elephant, uh, the elephant graph, Branko Milanovic, and, you know, hedgehogs and foxes. Uh, the, the the hedgehog knows the one thing and, you know, the fox knows many things. I have tended to use this metaphor of, of lenses with their different optical properties, um, with the, the China... Hedgehogs as they were tending to lean on The lens of national security Or a lens of, on, of human rights Or of technology competition Foxes having lots of lenses that they take up I've also used this metaphor that I really like From the TV show The Wire I don't know if you guys have watched The Wire It's it's great uh, There's a scene in, in, in season 4 uh, When when uh, Bunk Moorland and Kima Greggs are approaching a crime scene and he's snapping on the rubber gloves and he says, you know, you know what you need at a crime scene? And she kind of snarkily says, what, rubber gloves? Soft eyes, he says. Uh, he says, you know, soft eyes, you can see the whole thing. You got hard eyes, you staring at the same tree, missing the forest. You guys use also a lot of vision-related metaphors as well, these dragonfly eyes, which I absolutely love, but also kaleidoscopic vision. Anthea, can you talk about some of these metaphors that you favor and whether they point to distinct approaches or are they all different ways of talking about the same kind of mental map, the same kind of uh, approach?
0: So I think that they're related, but somehow they sort of build on each other. Um, Mm. And so one reason I'd originally reached out to you is I actually think that you are somebody who exhibits dragonfly eyes and you didn't quite have language to explain what it was that you were doing. So what do we mean by dragonfly eyes? So we we got the idea of dragonfly eyes from the super forecasting work and uh, the expert political judgment work by Philip Tetlock. And that's because if you think about like human eyes, we have two eyes that we integrate the vision of those two different lenses in order to get our bifocal vision. Whereas dragonflies actually have these two really large composite eyes that have thousands of different lenses and they integrate these thousands of different lenses to create a much more comprehensive view of reality that's actually almost 360 degree and so we use this as a metaphor for taking this sort of multifocal approach but also integrating in it it fits very much with that idea of differentiation so lots of different lenses and also integration like how do you bring them back together so I would say of your two metaphors, your lenses metaphor is a really nice um, way of thinking about that differentiation function. So all of the different lenses and how you see things through different ones, but it doesn't include that kind of integrative function of like how do you how do you bring them back together? And so your dragonfly eyes give you that. Your um, soft eyes one gives you a little bit more of that sort of holism, like how do we think about it in a holistic way, but doesn't do as much about like all the different individual lenses and how you put those together. But the soft eyes one also makes you um, think about something which is something that comes up through complex systems analysis, which is the difference between kind of looking at the tree and standing back to look at the forest. And I would also yeah. say zooming into the tree and back to the forest and in and back and looking at these of different levels. And that complex systems idea is something that is actually partially underpinning what we think of as the kaleidoscopic metaphor. So the kaleidoscopic metaphor, one reason that we shift from, we originally start with the Rubik's Cube of the different narratives which we unscramble onto the six different sides. But we didn't want to keep the Rubik's Cube going throughout. And the reason for that is the Rubik's Cube is a mechanical thing that we have created that has one answer. And we think with complex problems, whether they're economic globalization or US China relations or, um, you know, climate change, there isn't one answer. And so the closest way right. we could really think of that, where things kind of shift and your perspective constantly shifts and things kind of fracture and get new patterns, was the kaleidoscope. So instead of thinking about solving the Rubik's Cube and that being it, we think we're moving into this period where you're starting to see the different narratives break apart and recoalesce in this sort of kaleidoscopic way. And one of the things I've noticed about the kaleidoscopic metaphor is people are often starting to invoke it on these really complex problems where we're struggling to kind of articulate what it is and how it sort of changes in all these ways so you you see that kaleidoscopic metaphor coming out um in the uninhabitable earth for example Um, is it Mm -hmm, david mm -hmm. wallace wells -Wells, you see him use it you see him using it you see a kaleidoscopic metaphor coming out quite a number of times about the pandemic and climate change and i think what it's trying to get people to do is start to sort of think about this kind of ever-moving, ever-shifting thing that doesn't have a solution or an end point. And so the metaphors, I think, in many ways build on your metaphors, but sort of often add an extra dimension to them.
2: It's great that we're kind of coming down to talking about psychology. I mean, this is something that I flicked at in my conversation with David McCourt uh, from last week, uh, The the U.C. Davis professor, who's the sociologist who's working on China Watchers, and I thought there was a lot of resonances with this conversation today. Really interesting. This probably merits another podcast entirely. But I was wondering, as I read your book, whether you guys have noticed any correlation between an individual's temperament, their their psychological makeup, on the one hand, and on the other, maybe their propensity, in the specific case of globalization, to to accept or to subscribe to a particular narrative. Or a set of particular narratives, or, or more generally, that maybe character traits that predispose people to a capacity for integrative complexity. Do you see anything like that, Nicholas?
1: I, I think it's clearly the book is not a sociological study, and, and it also um, we don't analyze why people hold particular beliefs. So that's part of the taking it at face value. But what we definitely noticed. Uh, in terms of the contribution that we wanted to make to the debate maybe the corrective that we wanted to offer was most to the the perspective put forward by economists uh-huh. uh, which um which is uh, so here it's not so much about character traits it's about disciplinary training i i distinctly remember some of the critiques that we received from economists like one was well why isn't isn't this all just a, a set of falsifiable hypotheses that you put forward like why do you why do you present these stories as though oh. they are equally valid when clearly um that can't be true and only one is one is right and and part of our decision to focus on narratives rather than the underlying empirics was to put, to draw out those softer elements of the narratives particularly The moral of the different morals of the story, the different values, which was something that economists um, were often blind to, right? They have certain models, certain assumptions that uh, make them see the world in a particular way and come to unambiguous conclusions when uh, clearly the the debate was something that we we felt wasn't benefiting from these unambiguous conclusions. It it doesn't really help... uh, in this debate, to say to to someone else like I know I'm wrong, I'm right, and you're wrong. Right? I don't yeah. I don't know how
2: you resisted the temptation to answer those critiques with, this is exactly why we wrote the book. This is exactly why we're not taking the approaches, because you know your <laughs> idea. Yeah, this is this speaks to a. a Problem in with between the disciplines and area studies. This is something that I'm always going off about, uh, but you know the lack of holism, and it really really bothers yeah. me.
0: So while it's not a psychological study, I think that there's pretty good evidence from people like Tetlock that um, sort of active open-mindedness and openness to experience does um mean that you 're sort of more likely to kind of be open to new information and to sort of updating and to thinking from different perspectives and you had last week mentioned the episode of TEDlock on the Ezra Klein show, which was i think um by is it Julia Galef? and she talks yeah, about yeah. the scout mindset versus the soldier mindset so um, so she has a lot more of that, that psychology about like whether you tend to be someone who seeks to defend your view versus someone who seeks to update your view in light of new information. And I think there's a strong psychological component to this. And I certainly know when I've done these sorts of projects before, people are like, Oh, okay. All right. But which is the right narrative? And to me, <laughs> this, this answer, like the question makes no sense because I'm just so strongly not of that inclination. And also I'm a bit like, how could you read the book and ask that question? <laughs> but, but it's right. a very common question, which is I think we, I think, our educational systems, but also um, people's psychological predisposition, often want to find the answer and part of what I want to say about complex and evolving and contested fields is there isn't a right answer
2: that's exactly right um so Nicholas mentioned training and what training tends to promote this kind of mindset. A couple of things popped into my head as he was saying that I mean back before PPE meant. Personal protective equipment. Um, there was this old school liberal arts program. You had it at Oxford. You had versions of it at, at a couple of the Ivy League schools. It's usually, you know, philosophy, politics, and economics. Variations on that. I mean, we had something like that at UC Berkeley. Uh, there's the Harvard has this English and literature, uh, which is a really really cool training. I mean, although it, it lacks the maybe the rigorous elements. Law, though, strikes me as particularly good training for this this kind of mindset. And so many of the people who I've met who who can do this or do this habitually do come from a, a legal background. It involves being able to articulate, find the merits in multiple perspectives, anticipate criticisms. and, and Anyone who is steeped also in, in debate probably does this really well instinctively. And as it happens, Anthea, you were a big debater at school and, and college, right?
0: Yeah. So um, this came up in an <laughs> earlier conversation we had where you said like, oh, I think somebody like who does debate, and I was like, Oh, this is me. So, um, so I started debating when I was 11 years old, and, and d- ended up sort of debating internationally through my teens. And so I had learned at quite a young age to be able to argue one side of the case and then argue another side of the case. And I think that's also something you see in legal training, where you have the cab rank rule, which is you take the client that approaches you and you don't sort of say, do I agree or disagree? You, you seek to do the best representation of that client within ethical parameters, but still the best representation. And so one thing that I've thought more about since we published this book is what is the role of that legal training? Because when we went through the peer review process at Harvard, the economist that sort of presented it to the, the board finally, said, you know, this is a book that couldn't have been written by economists. We're just not used to seeing things from these different ways. It's just not the way we're trained. He said it had to have been written by lawyers. (laughs) And I thought that was such an interesting comment at the time because all of the people from my legal background would be like, gee, Anthea, you're not really doing anything about law in this book. You know, that's crazy. And what I sort of realized is that actually... Law might be operating here as an interpretive method, but I would say it's actually operating as an interpretive method in two different ways, which is if you think about legal training and you think about integrative complexity, the first step of integrative complexity is that differentiation, the multiple perspectives, the putting the case. That's very much the debating the advocacy function, the arguing different sides that you've identified, Kaiser. But the second step, the integrative, like how do you bring it back together? How do you make a reasoned judgment? How do you take both sides into consideration and come to some some way of moving forward? I would actually say that's like the adjudicative function uh, in law. The judge, so not the to, lawyer, but the, the judge. judge. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's a very, very different posture when you're training to be an advocate to when you're training to be a judge. And I think ah. I noticed this shift most clearly, actually, that when I finished school, Um, I I was captain of the Australian debating team, so I went around the world doing the advocate role. And then the next year when I was in university, I came back as the Australian judge. So I went around the world and did the adjudicative role. And it made me really conscious of the very different mindset between advocacy and adjudication, which I think both happen in legal training, though not as expressly as that, and I think are actually the two different elements of integrative complexity.
2: Wow, this has just been such an incredibly delightful conversation. I can't tell you how happy I'm. I mean, that I wanted to sort of launch this series with this, and it was such a good idea. Before we wrap up, I, I mean, I, I, think like a lot of these ideas that we've been talking about are are coming into more popular consciousness now. I think everybody knows things like what confirmation bias is now, uh, what what you know attribution error is, th- things like that, and it, it's great. Let's do some shout-outs to people who we've we've mentioned some of them, but let's 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 round them up at the end here. Before we go to actual recommendations, I think it'd be a good idea just to to sort of list off some of the people who have been influential in your in your thinking uh, in this book. Who are some of the thinkers who you would credit with popularizing the modes of thinking that you draw on and that you draw into your own analysis? And Nicholas and and Anthea, who, whoever wants to. Uh, shout some names out let's let's do that and i mean i can i can throw some in myself but
0: yeah so i think kaiser you've gone down the rabbit hole of reading some of these that, that one of the most obvious ones obviously is tetlock who we've already talked about yeah somebody yeah. that you mentioned in the intro that we haven't talked about but i found really really helpful in a whole variety of ways has been howard gardner yeah. and howard gardner was the one that came up with not that there is one type of intelligence but there are multiple types of intelligence and um I think that was a really revolutionary breakthrough in education theory, but is also an example of this kind of the complexity of intelligence and looking at it through these different lenses and seeing different things through different lenses. And one of the most delightful things about this book is we've now not only been in touch with Tetlock and what he's going to be doing on some of the next generation of forecasting work, which actually links to some of what we're doing in this book, but also we're now very much in touch with Howard Gardner. And one of the reasons we're in touch with Howard Gardner is he he's, he's 78 now and he's Um, he's retired but still incredibly actively working on things is his he did an intellectual autobiography recently called the synthesizing mind because what he started Mm. to realize was he had this particular approach which is not the sort of narrower disciplinary focus but is this very broad how do you bring very broad different ideas together and create frameworks that sort of make sense of this broad disparate stuff to yourself but also make sense to others and he realized he had this kind of mind he realized that you couldn't he couldn't really explain it people weren't really teaching it but it was actually really central to some of the work that he had done on the multiple intelligences also on a lot of the innovations we've seen like how darwin came up with um the the origin of life etc and something that he feels is being squeezed out of the current academy with these sort of focuses on narrow rigor and quantitative approaches and so i think when our sort ends of have touched to try and work out if there are other ways to explore this idea of this sort of holism and this, these synthesizing approaches. I think somebody else who's got this kind of instinct actually comes from business and management schools, who's Roger Martin. And he talks mm. about the opposable mind and the dear mind that often.
2: As in opposable thumb.
0: As in opposable thumb, right? Take, yeah. take an idea and look at it from two sides, dear mind, to so be able to hold not one idea versus another idea, but simultaneously hold. Both ideas in tension with each other, and that he found that the the people that were really leaders in their fields and business were capable of having this kind of dear mind approach. And so I think we see a variety of people that are like this. We're also, I think, seeing it come more into popular consciousness. So after we published this book, a book came out called Framers, uh, which is by the guys, including one of the editors from The Economist, who um, did the big data work. And they found with all the big data work, everyone was like, oh, this is so great, so computers will do it all. And they were like, well, no, actually, Computers aren't so good at doing that initial ability at framing and changing frames. That's a really human creative approach. And so they've written this book about framers, about how important it is to be conscious of the frames we use for interpreting information and to change frames and to have a plural approach to frames, which is very much kind of what we're doing as a worked case study in this book is is sort of reminiscent of that. And so I think there are a variety of um, thinkers out there who are getting at this, and you're also seeing it in, in more popular writers like is it David Epstein who wrote Range, which is instead of doing that sort of Malcolm Gladwell Ten thousand hours, narrow right. early specialization. What happens if we take more multidisciplinary approaches? When we, when we sort of shop around more, when we, we sort of widen our lens in various ways. And I think that this is um, kind of a counter movement to some of the specialization we've seen being, become so dominant in the twentieth century and the early part of the twenty first century.
2: And amen. Every every couple of years, I reread C. P. Snow's The Two Cultures. And that was sort of one of my early touchstones on that, and I definitely credit credit that for a, a lot of. There's a book. I mean, be, I think we should name check Edward O. Wilson, who just passed away. He wrote a marvelous book. I think it was 1998 called Consilience, which was one of the the ones that that really uh, it was one of those early reboots of my own mental models. Uh,
0: and can I say, just in the last week, so um, Howard and I have been back and forth on both of the two people that you've just mentioned. Um, so oh, he's really? looking at exactly this thing. Exactly, exactly. On, and he starts off talking about the snow and he starts off um, talking about Wilson and actually another Wilson, but I'll, I'll leave him to publish on that. Um, oh, fantastic. So when, when that comes out. But, but just to show you that your instincts, I think, uh, are absolutely spot on with where this kind of thinking is going.
2: Oh, uh, I'm glad to hear it. And I mean, I think there are a lot of people out there. I mean, I, I mentioned Robert Wright, uh, who I adore and who's super accessible. I mean, I, I, I think you should, people who, who listen to his show, uh, he's just put out, he started a series of, of stuff on YouTube, these uh, little mini lectures that are animated and, and really well narrated, uh, a lot of th- this stuff. Check it out. I w- this is going to be a long list of links that we're, we're going to have. Nicholas, do you want to chime in? Do you have anyone that you want to name check?
1: Well, Jonathan Hyde, um, oh, not course. so much his later work, but uh, his, his Anthony already mentioned during our conversation that the righteous mind mm-hmm, was mm-hmm. really illuminating to us and, um, and it provided a lot of confirmation for what we were intu- intuitively trying to trying to do in order to to understand and bridge these divides, which sometimes seem unbridgeable between different uh, values.
0: And I think actually not just his righteous mind, which I think is just such a beautiful example of this, but um, I, we we understand at the moment he's working on um, three different approaches to capitalism, which is a similar kind of different narrative understanding of capitalism. So hopefully there'll be more to come from John on this issue.
2: I shouldn't leave out George Lakoff, who was really uh, influential also on, on my thinking early on. Uh, he is really, you know, the, the person who, who wrote the book on metaphorical thinking and on on, on frames and narratives, uh, which I think was super, super useful.
0: Kaiser, if, you, if you're going to have Lakoff, uh, I think the one I often twin Lakoff with, so he does metaphors we live by, but one that I think is also just a beautiful example of the multiplicity is images of organization. Do you know this one?
1: No, um, I don't.
0: So images of yeah it's a business book actually, a lot of stuff comes out of the business world on this stuff, but uh, images of organization basically says we have these um, images or these sort of frames that we use to understand organizations and we have about at least eight of them that sort of subconsciously affect us so one is the organization as a machine, one is it as an organism, one is it like as a, a company and and he goes through in a really systematic way about what these different lenses, kind of what they reveal and what they obscure about the organization. And in many ways, that's a similar thing to what we're doing with economic globalization. It's this idea of the sort of multiplicity that there is no one right metaphor, there is no one right analogy, there is no one right frame. And so part of what you want to be training yourself to do is to work through this kind of multiplicity and see what each one reveals and obscures. Well,
2: I've got a nice long reading list to get empower me through 2022. This will be a fantastically good year of intellectual growth for me. Uh, One last question for you. Anthea. In our email correspondence, you've given me some tantalizing bits about your next book project. What can you tell our listeners about it? Uh, It seems it will maybe be even more relevant to our China-focused community than, than even Six Faces was.
0: Yeah. So you say, say book project as though it's singular. In my life, there's usually a proliferation. Um, so I'm <laughs> sort of working on, and two, um, big broad areas of work, which I think all have kind of connections to the China world in various ways, though I'm not a China scholar. Um, so the first is kind of ideas of governing and complexity. And part of the work that we're doing in governing and complexity is looking at how, um, the international system is a complex system and is moving much more towards, and we see this in environment and in trade and investment, instead of like, single kind of things like the WTO sort of monolithic. We're instead seeing more polycentric, more experimental, more evolutionary uh, approaches developing. And that ties really nicely with kind of ideas about how you um, move forward in complex systems. But interestingly, I think it ties really beautifully to a lot of the scholars we're seeing coming out now talking about China's economic approach. And I think often they have a complexity model in their mindset, sometimes expressly and sometimes not expressly, but I think it just comes up through that uh, that Chinese have e- experimental evolutionary adaptive guerrilla style approach. So one mm. scholar who's doing this very expressly is Yun Yunang, who I think is just fantastic. Yeah, um, another scholar it. who I think is just wonderful, who you've had on recently, is Isabella Weber. And again, you see this sort of approach. She doesn't consciously have it as a complexity framing, but all of her stuff about the experimental and evolutionary immersion approach is very consistent with these ideas of complexity theory. So I think on the one hand, there's a lot for us to learn in global governance from complexity theory, but there's also a lot we could take from complexity theory to the China case study. And there's a lot we could take from the China governance case study to global governance. So that's kind of one um, area of work that I'm working on. And the other area of work is actually to go back to the broader uh, question you sort of asked at the beginning, which is uh, to the extent that Globalisation is really a case study of how do we think about complex fields I want to return to the book about thinking global and sort of how do we use this as a method to go forward more generally. But in that, I'm particularly interested not just in the questions we've explored here about scale and frame and tone, um, but I'm also really particularly interested in asymmetries of flows of information. So here, for example, with global media, much easier for people around the world to know what English language people think and the English language media in the US and UK than vice versa, because there are these sort of asymmetries of flow, yet part of what happening with economic globalization is we're starting to rebalance those flows and, and kind of what does that mean and i'm also particularly interested in the role played by what i think of as third culture intellectuals which are people who are sort of fluent and grew up in in some ways at least two cultures and kaiser i think this is one reason i've always been drawn to your show that i think you're this sort of third culture intellectual who's uh, So fluent in both sides and interested in communication between them and also interested in redressing Mm. some of the asymmetries of communication. And so one of the things I'd say about these third culture intellectuals is um, they're often the ones who are the best able to bridge worlds. They're often the ones who are the most creative because they're able to kind of get ideas and put them together from different worlds.
2: I hear a butt coming.
0: But when worlds collide, yeah, when worlds collide, which is what we're seeing with the geoeconomic stuff, they're often the ones that feel the most squeezed. And I think you're really seeing that at the moment with the Chinese-American um, like scientists and, and people in the education system who are really feeling uh, that thing. And, and I think we see this not just with individuals but also with places that are these meeting points. So Hong Kong, for example, was at one point, you know, the gateway, the connection between East and West, and it was such a source of entry and possibility and communication and exchange and now what we're seeing is it's kind of the first one that kind of gets squeezed and so i'm interested in all of those dynamics for how do we think how do we think globally and who's better able to do it but who's also in in a more precarious position um, when things aren't going well
2: can't wait to have you back on the show to talk about all this this is fantastic you guys nicholas Anthea, this has just been the, the most fun conversation I've had in, in, in a very, very long time. I say that absolutely honestly. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this fascinating and important work that you've done. The book, once again, is called Six Faces of Globalization, and you will be very, very glad that you read it. So pick up a copy. Let's move on to recommendations. A super quick reminder that if you want to support the work that we're doing with Seneca and the other shows in the network, like China Stories and the China Africa podcast, and you can learn Chinese, then the best thing you can do is subscribe to SubChina Access, our daily newsletter. Help us out in this new year. On to recommendations. Anthony, I can't wait to, uh, to see what you guys have.
0: Okay, so um, in line with a lot of the conversation we've had, this recommendation partly actually is for you, Kaiser, which is I think you've got a very strong interest in um, – a corrective to kind of narrow, um, linear, sort of empirical approaches with a desire for sort of more holistic, more sort of artistic, more sort of um, big picture approaches. And so I, one of the things I think that you should read on this is called The Master and His Emissary by mm. Ian McGilchrist. And it actually ties a lot of this to left brain and right brain thinking, not in a classical sort of pop science, you know, left brain is a- um, analytical and right brain is creative, but really he's, he's, he's a psychiatrist with more than 20 years experience, published with Yale University Press, I think an incredibly illuminating way of saying that the left brain and the right brain process our world Differently and kind of communicate in various ways, but often with an asymmetrical way where the right brain, which is the more holistic one, really understands and values the left brain, but the left brain often doesn't really understand the value of <laughs> the right brain. So there's some really interesting asymmetries there.
2: I, I feel how the right wing feels. And I know how the right thing The feels. other
0: reason I think it would be interesting for you is he ties it to culture and to movements in culture. And he, in particular, talks about how the West, for various reasons, has very strongly gone down this left brain route and is increasingly going down this left brain route, whereas some of the other cultures and particularly in East Asia have much more of this these sort of holistic uh, approaches but he actually says of the west with some of the developments that are happening at the moment it's almost a little bit like we're having a right hemisphere stroke (laughs) and so I just think there are lots of really interesting ideas that will provide another way for you to think about some of the issues that I think motivate your approach and and the explanations you're trying to give and the views that you're trying to uh, put forward in your podcast.
2: I got to say, I, I love that you gave me a tailor-made recommendation for, for the host and not necessarily for the listenership. Uh, I'm sure our listeners are going to appreciate it as well. The Master and His Emissary. I've got to read it. I, that's topping my list now. Thank you, Anthony. Nicholas, what do you have for us?
1: Yeah. At first, I, I wanted to recommend a book that really um, helped our, our thinking um, as we were writing the book. It's by Oren Cass called The Once and mm. Future Worker. And the reason why it's so helpful, particularly to people um, working on trade, is that it, it really uh, foregrounds the trade-offs that are involved in all the policy that we make. And I think that's the, that the greatest disservice that the economics profession uh, and maybe the establishment narrative has done to conversations about trade is that they have tended to obscure those trade-offs. They um, have no. like said, like, look, this is going to maximize aggregated welfare, and we are going to be better off. Ultimately, what what wasn't made clear was that the metric that we are using is a purely economic one. It's a purely economic one. It's it's our our real incomes are going to be greatest maybe if you pursue this particular solution. But it hasn't foregrounded what is lost in the process. And so what Owen Cast does in this book, he takes head on this what he calls the 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 this image or the metaphor of the economic pie and the priority of growing the economic pie and says, well, it, here's, here, here are all the trade-offs that it obscures. And the central trade-off that he uh, foregrounds is is the one between production and consumption. Because, of course, for the for the establishment narrative, um, the fact that we can all afford more through our higher wages is, is in a way, the ultimate value and the ultimate vindication of our economic model. But what is lost in the process, like these workers who lose their jobs, that, that is... Clear. If you put that in monetary terms, it may not be worth that much, but but what Owen Cass essentially is saying is production is in so many ways uh, much much more fulfilling and much more important for what we do. And he has a very yeah. broad conception of production. It's not just work. It's essentially uh, positive contributions that we make uh, uh, to society, like rearing kids, um, volunteering, like um, creating things, as opposed to consuming and 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 receiving things so I, yeah, I all I think, the
2: things through which we derive meaning really exactly. truly. Um, uh, yeah. no, exactly I, I couldn't agree more this is something that i I feel like has is is having its moment at long last I think it, you know part of it is is the pandemic uh you know the 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 great resignation event that's happening the yeah well great i I will read that or in cast the once in future worker.
1: Can I do another one?
2: Yeah, no, go no, please. Yeah, absolutely. What's so the, this? is what's something
1: completely one? different. It's actually it's a it's a website. It's called uh, China Trade Monitor, and mm-hmm. it, it what it does it um it's a free free website. It, it's a new website by by uh, Simon Lester and Huan Zhu, uh, and it just gives you it shows you how the ground is shifting because it essentially shows you what is happening in the bureaucracies. It's a essentially, essentially Links to 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 um, any trade related news relating to to China that that is happening, and you see like all the the little ways in which uh, the West, um, but also China is 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 adjusting to this new reality, and and re- just receiving that that news data, you, you can see. Look, there's uh, like the European Commission grappling with the role of Chinese state-owned banks in in that anti-dumping investigation, right, and and it, it, it it's it's a really um, granular look at, at how the relationship is is evolving beyond the speeches and, and 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 actually at the technical at the technical level and just a final comment i wanted to make on that point is that Simon Lester is actually a very interesting figure because i think he he shows embodies the values of the establishment approach when it comes to to china he's one someone who's been very skeptical of, of the security uh, framing of, of the concern about national security and who has been pointing to the value of the institutions that we have. And something that we often forget is that when we're thinking about institutions such as the World Trade Organizations and the mechanisms that it provides, dispute settlement and so forth, China is much closer aligned with uh, Europe, Canada and other Western countries than the United States. Like the United States is the, is the, is the country that is... Uh, boycotting, sabotaging this dispute settlement system. China is a, a country that has agreed to join a replacement mechanism that was devised by the Europeans and the Canadians. And so is still engaged in, in rules-based, enforceable dispute settlement with, uh, with with other countries. And so uh, it's essentially, this, I think, uh, what's very attractive about this establishment uh, perspective here is to say, well... Let's be humble. Let's use the tools that we have to engage. Uh, let's let's use. Let's work with China at the edges. Yes, we're not going to solve this big issue, or not. not it's not going to be a, uh, a solution to everything. But let's work within the institutions that we have. Let's work within the frameworks that we have, and see whether we can uh, make some changes, uh, reach some agreements or, or around the margins. And so uh, I recommend the website both because it. Um, really gives you that granular look, but also because there is, I think, a real value in being attentive to, to the institutions and the links that we still have and that are still working and where sometimes the U.S. is the problem and not, not so much China.
2: Great. So I wanted to recommend something that's um, much shorter than a book. It's a good, meaty uh, article. We had him on the show not too long ago. I'm sure that more than half of our listeners have already read it. But it's uh, the latest New Yorker piece by Peter Hessler. And I think it was just one of the best that he's done. In it, it might be his absolute best New Yorker piece. It's called China's Reform Generation Adapts to Life in the Middle Class. It's in the December 27th issue. It's everything that you come to expect from a Peter Hessler piece. It's that exquisitely clean writing, the deep wells of empathy, the uncanny sense of how to create an outline with a few well-chosen lines and that it somehow gets the user's or the reader's brain to fill in the rest and create a really realistic color image. Uh, Jeremy and I had talked to him about how uh, in keeping such close touch with so many of the students that he had when he was an English teacher uh, in the Peace Corps in the mid-late 1990s. He had the makings of really a longitudinal cohort study because uh, he, he just kept on corresponding with these students over the last quarter century. So here you have a piece that basically checks in with, with that group, what, you know, 20, 23 years later, and it it says as much about the experience of change in China as anything else that I've ever read. I mean it more really. I mean it's just masterful. It's just uh, I I'm I was just pretty stunned by it. I read it twice and I'll probably read it again. It's just so good. But um yeah, great 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 piece. Peter is just uh, he really does embody so much without having to think about it, without having read any of these books. It just seems in, instinctive to him to be that person with the dragonfly eyes and, and with deep human empathy and compassion. Uh, I, I adore him. Anyway, thank you so much once again. It was so fun, my God. I mean, I, I got to tell you, I was, I'm i going to be on like a, a high for hours after this, and I'm not going to be able to sleep thinking about all these things that we've been talking about. So, Anthony Roberts, Nicholas Lamp, I hope you will both keep in, in close touch. And I just want to tell you, I mean, I am so grateful for really... Helping me to become a better thinker. Thank you to both of you.
0: Well, Kaiser, as longtime listeners to your show, it's such a delight to get to talk to you. And thank you for both embodying this approach in so many ways, but also doing what you're doing, which is to change some of the communication flows to make people better understand Chinese approaches and to bridge the gap. I think it's an extraordinary service that you're doing.
2: But as you say, I'm feeling the squeeze. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, this is this is uh, mood elevating. So thanks, thanks for. Thank again. you so
1: much. It's been wonderful. Thank you.
2: The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. I'd be delighted if you would drop me an email at Seneca at subchina.com or just as good, give the show a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover our program. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at News, and make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Take care.